0: My name's Jake, and uh, I'm the rector at Calvary St. George's, and I have a couple of loves in my life. I, you know, I have a wonderful wife named Melina, uh, who's at New York City watching our children, and um, I love the gospel, and, um, and I love hamburgers, and I actually belong to a very elite burger club in New York City, which is very exciting. There's two of us, and um, I want to show you uh, my favorite um, burger commercial of all time, and, uh, but before we can jump into that, uh, I have to give you some preface. It's from Carl's Jr., and I don't know if you ever watched Carl's Jr. Uh, burger commercials in the early 2000s, but they typically revolved around a really beautiful supermodel in a bikini eating um, a hamburger on top of, or washing a car and sauce falling all over her body. It was very seductive and, um, and wonderful, and, uh, but uh, as a teenage boy. And so anyway, but... Uh, um, but what actually happened was is that their sales, their Carl's Jr. and Hardee's burger sales, actually began to drop and, um, as a result of the commercials. And uh, so they've taken in a completely different ad pitch, uh, which I think is very important and powerful and reflective of the Reformation and what we're doing here. And so, Dave, is it good? Here we go! Let's go. You still talk to Stacy? Yeah, find the reply to my DM. Where
1: are you, babe? We're over here next to the barn. I'm about to pet this cat right here. Let me pet that cat. Where's the cat? Shoot the tiger. Go for Junior. Junior, I think your dad is here. What? Daddy. You're back! Yes! Take that down, put that up. That's was supposed to be a fresh ingredient. And then that lady got in there and her clothes flew off, it was windy. Miss, would you please dismount that bull? Who's this? This guy? I don't know him. Shut up, Junior. Yes, sir. Hello, friend. You know, when I started this company, it was about one thing, pioneering a new way of food. Daring food, cutting oak corners, food for you. Tea with your mouth. Walk with me. Keep the ball. We're keeping the ball. Then I passed it to the boy. He sold his wild oats as a young man is wont to do, and well, he got a little. Who hung? Who hung? Who hung? Who. Distracted. Yeah, things got real weird. That video was just for charity. We actually raised a lot of money. So I'm back to do what we do. What we've always done. Take a little flashback with me. No it started food. how all great things started. With meat and fire. We pioneered the charcoal. Where's my lettuce? I need more lettuce. And people in cars needed to eat, so we made the drive a thing. And I met a girl the boy. Well, we did things our own way. We brought your food straight to your table. I'm Brought all natural beef to the burger. I like this one, Daddy. And brought bacon to damn near everything. See, this is what I've been talking about. Food, not food. Shut up, Jimmy. Yes, sir. Pioneers of the Great American Burger, the Great American made from scratch biscuit. Whatever Great American thing we think of next, and that's a promise. Carl Hardy, Senior. But Daddy, I just bought that car. Buckle up, son. Good kitty.
0: So, what what does that commercial possibly have to do with the Reformation and what we're doing here? <clears throat> well, it's going back to the beginnings and back to the roots of our faith. Um, it's not. It's about. Um, it's about going back to the beginnings. So much of what passes for the Christian religion today, and those who would consider themselves heirs and children of the Protestant Reformation has nothing to do, actually, with the doctrines of the Reformation and the great truths discovered in that moment 500 years ago. They're sort of like Carl's Jr., you know. Talk to most Protestants today. They don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Most Protestants do not believe in justification by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. A lot of Protestants today believe that community is the number one thing. It's all about community. A lot of people believe that social concerns are the most important thing. Let me tell you, anybody can dig a well. The list goes on and on and on. And as a result, many are asking the question, what does the Protestant Reformation have to offer us today? Is the Reformation over? Are its protests still necessary? Let's just move on, get over it. And what I want to do today is go back to the beginnings and I want to talk about a person, a key figure in the Reformation that both Lutherans and Episcopalians have in common. His name was Dr. Robert Barnes and what the key issue that he was protesting and why it still matters today, especially for us. The second thing I want to do is I want to flush out why this doctrine is so important. And then third, I want to talk about what it does in a person's life when it's rightly understood. Uh, The guy Robert Barnes, he's an interesting guy and I first came across him in uh, 2007 when somebody gave me what was called the Reformation uh, letters of Dr. Robert Barnes. And Barnes was born forty miles north of Cambridge in the year 1495 and when he was 13, uh, he was sent to the monastery, and he was admitted as an Augustinian friar in Cambridge. They started really early in those days. There was like no third career going on. It's probably because you died when you were 30. But anyway, but, uh, um, but evidently, um, there, was a, there was a small priory in his town, but he showed a lot of promise. And so he was sent to Cambridge, and uh, where he remained for 10 years. Oh, am I good? All right, good. Thank you. I'm totally distracted. I lost my place. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, um, but in, in, so there he is in Cambridge. And in 1518, he goes to the, the city of Louvion, which is uh, part of the Netherlands at the time, the Dutch um, Empire. It's part of Belgium today to study because he was regarded as a great and budding humanist and a classic Classicist And some of the greatest humanists in those days, including Erasmus of Rotterdam, was teaching in Louvion at the time. And it's interesting, um, there was an English community there that he was involved in. And, uh, and really, Barnes proves the point, and uh, that a lot of the reformers, uh, Erasmus laid the egg that eventually Luther hatched. But these guys were involved in in going back to the beginnings as well, much like Carl Sr. They were, let's get beyond the Latin, let's get beyond simply the tradition, let's go back, what does the Greek actually say? What does the Hebrew actually say? What did the patristics and the early church fathers have to say on these things? And so, Barnes is immersed in this teaching, and in 1523, he receives his doctorate in divinity and goes back to Cambridge, and he's sent back to Cambridge to this monastery where he is regarded now as the prior of the monastery, which uh, was a big deal because this put him above a priest Um, And it gave him a lot of influence in in the sense that a bishop couldn't just come in and tell him what to do. He was in charge of what he taught in the Priory. And coming back from the continent, he uh, began to teach quite a bit uh, against uh, the wealth of the clergy. He preached a very controversial sermon on comparing the bishops of his day to the manger in which Christ was born and also he uh, preached against lawsuits amongst christians that was his big thing when he came back from the from studying with the humanists and this was quite troublesome because this made him sound a bit like an anabaptist and some of the radical anabaptists were leading revolts all across Uh, the continent of Europe. But he comes back, and there he is, and he's protected because uh, a bishop is sitting in his, he's not only a prior, so he can say whatever he wants, but there's a bishop who's sitting in his congregation and soaking up his teaching, which was um, a a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer. Well, Hugh Latimer gives him a lot of support, and whenever a clergyman is given support by his bishop, which rarely, rarely ever happens, uh, they, uh, they become bolder and bolder and bolder. And eventually word gets out and it goes to the government and, uh, and people are worried that he's actually an Anabaptist. Sir Thomas More accused Robert Barnes of uh, uh, speaking much of the spirit but having the devotion of a dog. And so he was uh, brought in, in 1526, 25 charges of wrong teaching are brought against Robert Barnes. And he's told to recant these teachings on Christian lawsuits and the wealth of the clergy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he does. He recants it all. And he does penance by spending time in fleet prison. I can't imagine, you know, f- spending time in fleet prison based on a sermon I preached. But uh, he does. And, um, <clears throat> and then he's released in 1527, and he's put in um, house arrest in an Augustinian monastery in London. Now, this is like pouring gas on a fire. Uh, because during that time, Robert Barnes begins to hear about what's going on in other Augustinian monasteries across the continent of Europe. And theological tracts, the Augustinians are smuggling theological tracts into England from the Holy Roman Empire and from Holland and spreading them out throughout all of England. And so in 1528, Robert Barnes is soaking this all in, and he begins to appear to be depressed, severely depressed, and hearing these news. And he begins to say how sorry he was about how he ever spoke against the church and all these things. He's incredibly depressed. And the Augustinian colleagues are like, this guy needs to, like, get out a little bit. And we'll let him walk along the River Thames to cheer himself up. And one day while he's walking, he disappears. And they find his clothes there on the bank of the River Thames. And they spend a week searching for his body, and it never, never turns up. And then in 1529, he emerges in Wittenberg. Uh, he faked his own death. <clears throat> and he shows up in Wittenberg, Germany, and he is living as the guest of Johannes Bugenhagen, who would have been Martin Luther's pastor. And so a lot of people speculate that while he was reading these tracts, he was writing to Germany and corresponding secretly through the Augustinian network back into Germany and found a place to stay. And so he faked his own death, and by laying his clothes out, they spent all this time looking for him, and he was able to sneak across and get to the continent. And so there he is in Wittenberg, Germany, and he's hanging out, and he's there for the Diet of Augsburg and all of these great things, and he soaks up the theology. Um, but his, home, his heart is home uh, in England, and uh, in, in Tudor England, you had two loyalties. That was to uh, God and the king, and, uh, and he, he wanted to clear the air about these 25 um, grievances that were brought to him. And so in 1531, he writes from Wittenberg, Germany, what was called the supplication of, to King Henry. And in that supplication, he writes about his loyalty to the king. And he refutes theologically and from the Bible all 25 charges brought against him. And then he lays out from his studies with Luther 10 doctrinal pieces on justification and where the church has gone wrong. And he clears the air and he thinks, well, nothing else will come of that and I'll spend the rest of my days here in Wittenberg. And then he receives a letter from England and it's not shame on you, Robert Barnes. It is you are now the English ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> now, why would that have happened? Well, because Henry had uh, married his uh, brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, and uh, despite her six pregnancies, she only had one child, and that was Mary, and he needed a male heir. And so he wanted Robert Barnes to begin to petition these German princes who, because uh, Catherine of Aragon's nephew was uh, King Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor, he needed him to petition these other electors to bring pressure so that they might grant it. Uh, through the Pope, grant him an annulment. Now, a lot of people think that that's all that was going on, but this is actually really radical and revolutionary because Henry didn't just say, hey, man, I need a divorce, like, this ain't working out. No, um, he appealed, now, this is terrible exegesis, but he appeals to the book of Leviticus, um, you shall not marry your brother's wife. He appeals to the book of Leviticus, and he says, this is, like, God has cursed me. Now, this is terrible exegesis. But what's significant about this is that this is the first time where a king is appealing to the word of God over and above the Pope. And so what was going on in Germany and northern Europe at this time is that countries and and these little fiefdoms are forming together what became known as the Schmalkaldic League. And the Schmalkaldic League, and if you read their articles, it's very similar, and Robert Barnes was all involved in that. But um, uh, they look very similar to our 39 articles. But um, the German princes see Henry VIII, and they're like, man, this would be a very, very powerful ally to our cause. And so um uh and uh, and so you have guys like this guy named Philip of Hesse and John Frederick of Saxony and they're like man Luther what do you think this would be amazing well Luther had already written against uh, Henry VIII and Henry VIII had written against Luther and uh and Luther was like no way this is ridiculous. This has nothing to do with the Word of God. Let me tell you what Leviticus is actually about. And, uh, and so in 1531, uh, Barnes has to go back to England and deliver the bad news that Henry doesn't want to hear. And so, uh, and Henry sends uh, Barnes back to northern Europe, and, uh, and he begins to, like, petition the Danish kings, and he meets with all of these folks. But the real thing is, so he's not only a politician, but at the same time, he is reading and, and, uh, and, and converting back to the basics. He's going back to the basics, char-grilled burger, justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the word alone and uh but nobody is nobody's interested in Henry's Henry's issues really and uh and so um, theologically and so um what happens is that Henry kind of has an ab reaction and he creates his own church And it looks like the medieval church in almost every way, except he's the head of it. And uh, bishops in England are uh, leaving, Protestant bishops are leaving England by the droves, and they're finding refuge in in northern Europe. Um, They are uh, dying, and some of them are resigning. Anyway, Robert Barnes, uh, uh, making a long story short, he goes back to England. And uh, and, uh, is the diplomat. He's invited to preach at St. Paul's Cathedral there in the open pulpit. And he is invited to preach there the opening sermon uh, for First Lent in 1540. However, as he's getting into the pulpit, he's kicked out by the archbishop of the time, Archbishop Gardner. And Archbishop Gardner takes the text, which I will tell you what it was in just a second, And he begins to preach against justification by faith alone. He begins to preach against grace alone. He begins to preach against Christ alone. And so, Barnes is sitting there looking a little flabbergasted. And so when he finds out that he's not on, you know, because he's been bumped out of first, he's been moved to third Sunday of Lent. And so Barnes gets into the pulpit and uh, the text is different. But he preaches from the same text as Archbishop Gardner, and he begins to preach and defend the doctrines. And he begins, and it's amazing because yesterday someone said after Nick's sermon that he should drop the mic. Uh, Robert Barnes literally took off his gloves and threw them at the feet of the archbishop. (laughs) He threw them down in the pulpit, and this this was his main line. He says, In Holy Scripture, Christ is revealed as nothing but a Savior, a Redeemer, a Purifier, a perfect peacemaker between God and man, not a lawgiver. The faith which we have in Christ, Jesus, and his precious blood are alone and sufficient in justifying us before God without the help of any work. This sermon led to his martyrdom eventually in July 30th, 1540. But the theme of his sermon came from Romans chapter 3 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is my first point. This is the heart of the Reformation. And it's the heart of the Reformation still today. It is the Carl Sr., and everything else is Carl's Jr. (laughs) A sinner, condemned by the law, sentenced to death and damnation. That's what you have to understand. You're not just having a bad hair day before God. You have before His law offended Him. And the sentence is death and damnation. You have to get that in order to understand how sweet the gospel actually is. But by God's own law, he sends one. He sends one, and he justifies us through that one Jesus Christ. And because of that one Jesus Christ and his work alone, you are declared righteous by his forensic act. You are declared righteous by faith in that act. To trust in Christ and his atoning bloodshed on the cross apart from the works of the law. And the truth of the matter is, is that this isn't Protestantism, this isn't Lutheranism, this isn't Episcopalianism. This is Christianity. Every religion has the law in common. That's so what we have, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, do under, We all have the golden rule in common, but the one thing that makes Christianity unique is in your failure to follow the golden rule, one has stepped in and done it for you perfectly and died on your behalf and was risen for you. And he intercedes on your behalf right now. This is Christianity. To quote Barnes again, He is blessed whom God imputes justification without any works and without all manner of observances. That is the main thing. And it is neglected. And this is the story of Christianity, unfortunately. The freedom of the gospel goes out. Justification goes out. And then heaven forbid someone's going to get away with something. So we begin to clamp down. You saw it with St. Paul. And he writes about it in 1 Corinthians. And he writes about it in Galatians and these super apostles. Yeah, 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 Jesus, of course. But now you got to do something. You know, you see it with Augustine and his preaching. And then Pelagius comes along and is like, that is deadly. you got to do something. You know, you see it after the Reformation. Within a generation on the continent, it was with the uh, uh, Pietist movement, and then uh, in, in England, it was with the Puritans. Yeah, yeah, grace, grace, grace. That's amazing. But now you got to do something. And we see it in our own traditions, in Evangelicalism. Yeah, gospel, of course, awesome. But now you better have some amazing quiet times to stay close. You know, in the Episcopal Church, the Jesus movement, and this. You know, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's not the main thing. It's our natural fallback religion, though. I love how Rod Rosenblatt says that we're all born lawyers. We need to be taught the gospel, that there's nothing left to do. It's every other religion that God wants us better or needs our help. You know, well, we need to do something for God. You know, as if he's up there in heaven going, like, Man, I hope Jake gets it together. My hands are tied on this one. (laughs) It's the king of the universe we're talking about. I actually was having dinner with a person, a very high person in, in the church, and he said that. And I was like, That is nonsense. That is nonsense. He's the king of the universe. And then, you know, he kind of looked at me like we were crazy. And then he was talking about the obedience of the gospel and how we need to go out and and be and live the gospel. And I said, that is the problem. You have a complete category mistake. You hear the gospel. You don't be it. You hear good news. You do the law. And this is the thing. We need to hear this message that a person is blessed whom God imputes justification to without any works and without all, all manner of observances. We love self-improvement. We love the God who wants to make us better. We run from the one who wants to make us brand new. And this is ultimately what makes justification by grace actually nonsensical and defensive to the human ear. For many folks, justification makes no sense. And indeed it doesn't to the person who wants to be helpful. Why would God give us a law if he didn't intend for us to keep it? Well, it's to show you, as St. Augustine said, what you need from him. And this is my second point. This ultimately is where the world, this is where much of the church is at. It's not Christianity, though. Let's just lay it on the table. It's not Christianity, and it's why the Reformation is still for today, inside and outside of the church. When we need to work upwards towards God, when sin is a choice, and we're consumed with avoiding evil, we begin to talk about sin in terms of sins failing to realize that our condition, sin, is what causes us to sin. That's the problem. It's our condition. It's who we are from the moment we're born, from the north to the south to the east to the west. We think that we're at the center of the universe. We think that we are God. And the law exposes this in us, that every part of us is out of whack, In thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, and the most troubling part is, and what we have left undone. Those things known, and the troubling part unknown. I've once heard us in life, when it comes to religion, compared to a poker game. And we're all holding, we're all holding a two of hearts, a three of clubs, a seven of diamonds, and the nine of spades. And we're trying to fake it. but sooner or later, the hand is going to come down. And we have to have it revealed. But the gospel says, despite your terrible hand, that isn't going to win a dime. The royal flush is yours. And this is my third point. Where is the religious boasting and bluffing and all the ways we try and put on our Sunday best before God? It's excluded. In fact, the only way to keep the law is faith and trust that God in Christ turns losing hands into winners, that God in Christ justifies sinners and declares you and me righteous in his sight and works then they become for your neighbor. They become for your neighbor. Let me kind of conclude how this all kind of flushes out. He is blessed whom God imputes justification without any works and without any manner of observances. He is blessed because we can't do it. And when we realize though that despite the fact we can't do it, we've been given a royal flush that fills you with compassion. That fills you with grace for the poor people around you. Dave Zoll wrote an article back in 2012 on a talk given by psychologist David Stenson, and it was entitled, The Science of Compassion. And that science actually backs up the profound idea that he who has been forgiven little loves little, from Luke chapter seven, verses 47. And that he who has been forgiven much loves much. The very root of compassion is an understanding how much you have been forgiven how much you have been loved, despite yourself. The money quote in that article was this, the distress we see someone experiencing, the compassion we feel for them, isn't determined by the objective facts on the ground. It's determined by who's looking. It's not the severity or the objective facts of a disaster that motivate us to feel compassion and to help. It's whether or not we see ourselves in the victim. this is the good news of the gospel my friend. He who was in tempt- he who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin has died for you. that's the whole point of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. It's not four steps for you to resist the devil. You know, the perfect example for you when the devil comes to confront you. You know, man doesn't live by bread alone. Say that to him. You know, no. (laughs) The point of that is for you to look and say, there is my righteousness. There is the one who has finally come to save me. To save me. There is the God who has looked upon my lowly and broken state and has had compassion And mercy on me. And I will cling to him. And then, working through me, I might be of some good to this world. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the heart of the Reformation today. And it's the beginning and the end of our faith. We hold that one is justified before God by faith, apart from the works of the law. It doesn't get any more Carl Sr. than that. (laughs) Amen.